Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How are you? All right. It's Palm Sunday, which means it's one week before Easter. And Palm Sunday marks Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. He rode in on a donkey and all these crowds gathered and cheered and waved palm branches before him, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is actually a cool word. It's kind of our English way of sounding out the word the Greeks used to sound out this Hebrew phrase, Yosha Anna. And way back in the day, like in Psalm 118, which is what the people of Jerusalem were actually quoting when they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was this cry for help that meant, oh God, save us. But over the years, from generation to generation, it kind of morphed into this defiant declaration of hope in the middle of brokenness that meant God is going to save us. Like, Hosanna, God's going to save us. So when people yell that at Jesus, it meant that they were expecting God had sent him to save them, which is amazing, except they had no idea what that actually meant. And we know they had no idea because of the palm branches. Why? About 150 years before Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, this guy named Judas the Hammer Maccabeus which is a killer nickname, by the way, had led a rebellion of the Jews against the oppressive Seleucids, and he won. And so they celebrated by waving palm branches, and then the hammer hammered palm branches onto the back of their currency as a symbol of salvation. And so when people are crying out, Hosanna, God's going to save us, God's going to save us, they're waving palm branches, what they're saying to Jesus is, hey, save us. Save us in the way we want to be saved. Save us in the same way we've been saved before. They thought he was going to save them politically by leading a rebellion against the oppressive Roman Empire and then returning the kingdom of David to the Israelite people, which would have been a pretty huge task. But it turned out Jesus had something even bigger in mind. He was going to save him from sin by defeating sin, death, and the devil and setting up a brand new rebel kingdom, the likes of which the world had never seen. And the ways of that kingdom will be lived out before a watching world. And the truth of that kingdom would be spoken into the darkness by this new movement Jesus started called the church. A movement of everyday men and women who committed their lives to the mission of making the greatness and the grace of Jesus known. And as they did that, they wrote a better story and changed the future of the world. I think sometimes we look back on that, or at least I'm guilty of this. I look back at the early church, the first Christians, and I kind of mythologize them as superheroes in my mind. I think they must have had some sort of uncommon courage or brilliance or greatness that I just don't have inside of me. Like they must have been able to reroute the world because they weren't like me at all. Because that's not true. They were painfully ordinary human beings. They just had a conviction that God could use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And that conviction has defined the church for 2,000 years. 
For century after century after century, the people of God have believed that God works through ordinary people to do extraordinary things. One of my favorite examples of that comes from the 20th century. After Pearl Harbor was bombed in 1941, this scrawny little kid named Desmond Dawes was among the many Americans who were so heartbroken, he felt like he had to do something. So he enlisted in the army. But Dawes had this faith conviction that he should never take a human life. So he signed up to be a medic and committed to not carry a gun or even a knife into battle with him. He was just going to help wounded soldiers. That's what he was about to do. And then his battalion got shipped to the island of Okinawa and ordered to undertake the almost impossible task of climbing up a 400-foot cliff and taking out the Japanese garrison that was stationed atop it. So they started the attack and it went terribly. Like the Americans were driven back, they retreated down the cliff, and the only people left at the top were Japanese soldiers and wounded Americans. And nobody at the bottom knew how they were going to rescue the wounded until a body appeared on a rope over the edge of the cliff, and it got lowered all the way down. And as soon as that soldier was on the ground, the rope disappeared. And then another body came over the cliff It happened again and again, soldier after soldier, until everyone realized Desmond Dawes had not retreated. He was still at the top, dodging enemy fire, making his way to wounded men, providing them care, and then lowering them to safety and the medical tent below. And he didn't quit. He kept charging in again and again and again until by nightfall, he had personally saved the lives of 75 men. When he was later asked while receiving the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions, what were you thinking as you continually put yourself in harm's way? Desmond Dawes said, I just kept praying, God, please let me save one more. God, please let me save one more. You guys, God loves using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Ordinary people who are willing to trust him and live on mission with him can change the world. And that's us. That's the church. Like, that's you and me. And I think sometimes we get it confused. I do. Anyway, I grew up in this era where we did a fun little thing in Sunday school. We would put our hands together and recite a poem. It went like this. Here is the church. Here is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. Some of you are looking at me like that can't be real, and I wouldn't believe it either if I didn't live it. This is my lived experience of Sunday school as a small child. And you know what the worst part about that poem is? You're thinking, uh, the worst part is that it's cringy and awful and embarrassing. No, that's bad. That's not the worst part. The worst part is we taught that to kids because we thought it was cute, but it's also horrible theology. That has nothing to do with what Jesus says about the movement that he was trying to start in the world. This is not the church. This is the church. This is just the spot the church gets together to hang out. That's it. We are the church. You and me. Church isn't a place we go. It's a community with a mission we choose to be a part of. And if we'll get on board with that mission and step into the purpose God wants to hand us, he will use us in all of our ordinary to make an extraordinary difference. That's kind of Paul's last challenge and reminder to the church in Colossae. We're finishing up our series, Image of the Invisible, this morning by looking at Paul's final charge to the church. And then the last few paragraphs are him saying hi 
to different folks, and that's usually the way he ended his letters. But his final charge right before that is really powerful. And he puts it last because it's most important to him. For Paul, as for most of us, last words are often of first importance. We save the best for last, and we say at the end what we most desperately want people to remember. So this is what Paul desperately wants the church at Colossae to remember. It's found in chapter 4, verse 2. If you have a, a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to the book of Colossians. If not, you can follow along with the words on the screen. If you need a Bible or your kids need one, we have them for all different ages. Back at the Next Steps table, they are a gift to you. Please take one before you leave today. This is Paul's final thoughts. He offers like five different challenges to this church. And the first one is devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful, and thankful. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Sounds kind of intense, doesn't it? But it's really not that confusing. Devote just means make it a priority. Set aside time for it. The word we translate devote literally means stay alert to this. It's kind of like if you're alert to the physical condition of your body, then you make health a priority. So you set aside time to go to the gym or go for a run, cook good meals for the purpose of staying healthy. If you're alert to the provision of God in your life, then you make generosity a priority. And so you set aside money every time money comes in for the purpose of giving it in a way that advances God's kingdom. And Paul's saying, stay alert to prayer so that you make it a priority and set aside time for it in your life. It's not hard to wrap our minds around, right? But can we be honest for a minute? Can I be as a pastor? It is hard to actually just do sometimes, and I don't know why, and I feel like prayer shouldn't be this difficult, but I get into my own head about it. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to say some stuff to God that he already knows, that he already knows I'm going to say to, why am I saying, what am I even supposed to say? This is just me. Anybody else ever do this? I bet I'm not alone. So let me simplify prayer real quick, okay? The Bible makes it clear that in Jesus we have everything we need. Paul's been hammering home that truth throughout the entire book of Colossians. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. Jesus is everything. God has provided us with every bit of every resource we need to do life and faith the way he created us to do it. So what's prayer? Prayer is the pathway to the provision God promises. Prayer is the pathway to the provision God promises it's how we access everything available to us and the not so secret or the not so secret truth of Christianity is that everything available to us is everything we need. And here's what's so revolutionary about that I think in every other faith system on planet earth including atheism, agnosticism, secular humanism, whatever belief system any human being has ever built their lives upon, the way you gain access to what you need, the way you get what you want is to think right and then behave right. Like if you assimilate well enough, if you toe the line and do the right things the right way, then you're accepted and you're worthy and you're loved and you're blessed. And Christianity is like, no, that ain't it. That's not it at all. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. And riddle me this. Again, every relationship in your life, as a kid to your parents, as a husband or wife to your spouse, as a friend to your friends, as an employee to your coworkers, in every relationship you have, how do you access what you need? Like, how do you get out of that relationship 
what's available to you. You ask for it. Conversation. You talk to them about it. And that's prayer. It's a conversation where you're talking to God and asking Him for what you need. And I think as we devote ourselves to prayer, it's helpful to have some categories for it. And I've heard some people say there are like four or five different types of prayer in the Bible. And people use acronyms like ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, to like make sense of how to pray and, and what to pray for. I even came across a book once that said there are 10 types of biblical prayer. I'm not against any of that. Like if that works for you and it makes sense to you, go for it. None of that's wrong. It's just too much for me. I can't even keep my twins' names straight sometimes. And there's two of them who hate being called the wrong name. So when I'm confused, I just yell twin because they both answer to that. And it's fine. It's going to be all right. But 10 is too much. I got time for that. So I basically boil it down into two big buckets. There's me prayers and mission prayers. Me prayers and mission prayers. And me prayers doesn't mean selfish prayers at all. That's just the prayers where as a child of God, I'm coming to him asking for the things I need him to provide me. Like my daily bread and forgiveness of my sins. I need his grace. I need healing. I need help. I need hope. I need provision. And I need a whole lot more. The Bible tells us we're sons and daughters of the king. And Hebrews 4 says we should approach his throne of grace with boldness. And so me prayers are about this bold approach to the throne, like, Father, this is what I need. This is, this is what my family needs. They're, they're the prayers about the needs of individuals. And then mission prayers are prayers that are focused on God equipping us to live out the purpose he's called us to. Mission prayers are about being the representatives of Jesus on earth, about stepping into the high calling of pointing lost and lonely, lonely people toward his love. Like our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Those are, those are mission prayers. God, give Revision Church the courage and the wisdom we need to step out and light up the darkness around us. It's a mission prayer, me prayers and mission prayers. And they're not like hard and fast, black and white dichotomy. Don't get too caught up on it. There's overlap in between them. But if that's helpful for you or whatever is helpful for you, like we come to God and we have a conversation about what I need, what we need, the me and, and the mission. And however you do it, Paul says, devote yourself to it. Stay alert to its importance and make it a priority in your life. And when he says be watchful and thankful, he's saying pray, not with a spirit of obligation, like I have to do this, or, or a spirit of fear, but a spirit of confident expectation that in that prayer you will have access to all the things God promised to provide. And then he issues his, his second challenge or invitation to the church at Colossae. He says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. And here's Paul, or here Paul's talking about metaphorical doors, like open some spiritual doors so that we can declare the gospel to people. But he's also talking about literal doors He's in prison and he wants to be set free so he can keep declaring the truth of Jesus to more people. But what's crazy is that even locked up, Paul probably preached to and reached more people for Christ than most of us will scot-free our entire lives. He was a man who knew what mission mattered most and he bent his life in the direction of chasing it. 
And so he begged the Colossians to pray for open doors for the message of Jesus, or as he calls it, the mystery of Christ. And what he's saying there is not that it's mysterious, not like, who knows what this could be. It's kind of a confusing thing. He's been talking about the mystery of Christ the entire book. By mystery, he means the surprising plan of God to reconcile all of humanity to himself. The mystery isn't a mystery anymore. It's, it's Jesus. It's what Jesus did and who Jesus is. That, as Paul poetically put it back in chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Telling people that is why Paul is in chains. But even while he's locked up and facing death, the only thing on his mind is more open doors to share the message with more people. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm convicted by that. Like I look at my life and I look at my priorities and I look at my prayers and I think, how often am I actually obsessed with the idea of bending my life in the direction of sharing Jesus? And for a lot of us, for for American Christians, we kind of pray if we pray for open doors at all, for them in, in like a, a broad sense. Like, God, I pray that people would come to know you. I pray that, that the world would have peace. But we don't really specifically name those people. And even if we have a list of specific people we're praying for, a lot of us don't take time out of our schedules to share Jesus with those people or invite them in. We pray for them, but we don't want any personal cost to it because we're like, eh. I mean, let me ask you this this morning. What open doors are you praying for? What open doors are you praying for? Is praying that God would open doors so that you could share the good news of Jesus with the people you crash into even a part of your prayer life? Is praying for open doors so that your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members might come to understand the hope you have, even something that you think about? Maybe it is. Maybe you're praying for open doors and you're chasing open doors, but if you're not, let me give you a couple examples of open door prayers so that you can jump in on this and start. There's some open door prayers you can pray right alongside me. For starters, about a hundred of us have spent the last month praying for Easter at Revision, that God would open a door for people next week who are far from him to come and meet his love and crash into his grace and have their lives and futures completely rewritten. Or the week after Easter, Courtney just talked about it in announcements. We're having a big old carnival for kids. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're starting a marriage series called First Comes Love, Then Comes Baggage, because that's reality. And we are praying for an open door that relationships might be healed by the great physician and that people in that will understand and get a better picture of who God is and who he created them to be and crash into his grace. Our building team is meeting right now, searching for a space that'll be a permanent home for a vision. We have about a million dollars pledged over two years. A third of that is already in, and we're looking for the right spot and also realizing it's going to take a miracle to find that, that spot. It's going to be an only God thing when we find the spot God has for us. He's going to have to open some doors, and we believe that he will. So we are praying and trusting for God to open the door and help us find the right spot. Pray for that. Or maybe find three people. Three people, three names of people you think, man, I 
desperately want him, I desperately want her to know Jesus and start praying for open doors with those people. And I guarantee you as you do that, as you start praying for open doors for, for those three specific names to crash into Jesus, you will find more open doors to have conversations about the hope of Jesus that lives in you. Maybe not even with those people that you're praying for. You'll just find them because you're looking. It's kind of like when you buy a new car and then suddenly you see it everywhere. Like the first week you're driving a new car, you're convinced that 50% of people in America drive your car, right? You're just like, it's, it's all over the place. When you start praying for open doors, you will find more open doors because your eyes are open to open doors because you're asking God to open doors. That just is. It is. And so Easter, marriage series, revision building, three people you want to see meet Jesus, pray for some open doors and then just see what God does. I dare you to just see what God does. And then Paul issues his third challenge to the church in Colossae. He says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. He's talking about his message, like the mystery of Christ, God's surprising plan to save the world. And he asks for prayer that God would help him make the mystery clear by speaking it in a way that's simple and sensical as he carries the gospel to the world. And I love this so much. And maybe it's because as a preacher, I'm particularly susceptible to it. But I also think it's kind of something all of us fall prey to from time to time. It's kind of the story of the history of the church. It's really easy to complicate the simple good news. It is. We take this beautiful gospel truth of grace at the beginning, grace at the end, and all grace in the middle, and then we make it complicated by adding to it, by demanding performance in order to earn grace. Or we make it complicated by subtracting from it, by minimizing sin and pretending there is no need for grace. And Paul's like, look, it's, it's simple to fall off on either side of that, to, to maximize or minimize it, to ask for performance or to pretend people don't need it. Please pray that every time I share Jesus with people, I will make it clear. So they can crash into his grace, know his love, and see their futures and eternities completely rewritten. And then he writes, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. I think the word outsiders jumps off the page, right? Especially in 21st century America. Because outsiders is pretty exclusive language. And oh, that's a no-no in our culture. Everything has to be inclusive all the time. But the Bible's a pretty exclusive book. Jesus, as it turns out, is a pretty exclusive God. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't get more exclusive than that. This is not possible. But the thing is, Jesus does exclusivity in an entirely different way than the world does. Instead of patrolling the walls to make sure that nobody who's outside his little group ever gets in, Jesus kicks down every wall and kicks down every barrier in order to invite everybody in. And that's the mission he gives us, the church, inviting outsiders in. So it matters that we seize the day and make the most of every single chance we get to do that. And I, I love the word that Paul uses here, that we translate make the most of. It's this Greek word, exagorizomenoi, which for starters, this is just fun to say, okay? Exagorizomenoi, and it literally means buy up. Like you found something at such a crazy price 
Someone put the wrong sticker on it. You got to buy up all of them that they have in the store. Otherwise, you're, just, you're losing money on the deal. You get exaggerated zomenoi, quick. Paul's going like, hey, treat every chance you get to share Jesus with someone you crash into the way a woman treats a trip to Target. Buy it up, buy it all. Explain it later. Like, we got to grab hold of this stuff. It matters that we take advantage of the chances we have to buy it up. But if we're going to do that, we got to live in a way that forces people to ask us why we're living that way. We got to live in a way that causes them to wonder why we have the hope we have, why we're living the way that we're living, that makes them notice there's something different about us, our peace, our, our hope, our love, our commitment, our generosity. It makes them think, I, I, I want that. What? Is that? Because I think the truth is, in our culture specifically, there are a lot of people who've been hurt by the church. And there are a lot of people who've been lied to by the enemy of their souls. And there are a lot of people looking for reasons not to believe. So we probably shouldn't help the enemy out by being jerks. Or by living in a way that looks exactly like everyone else around us so they never have any reason to wonder about this Jesus we claim to be following. The theologian N.T. Wright put it like this. He said, a blameless life is the foundation for a, greatness, or for a, a gracious witness. Be wise, live blamelessly, exaggerate zamanoi every chance you get to share Jesus. And Paul's fifth and final challenge is this. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is cool because he's just assuming we're going to be having these conversations. He's assuming we're living on mission with Jesus in a way that causes people to ask us the question. He's like, look, if you're stepping into the future, God's trying to hand you. If you're living on mission with him, you're going to have conversations. If you're not having conversations, get on mission. But when you have the conversations, make sure that they're full of grace, seasoned with salt. What in the world does that mean? I've heard some people say it means we should err on the side of grace and then sprinkle in just a little bit of truth in there with it, right? Like it's full of grace, seasoned with, with salt, just a, just a little bit of truth. And that kind of makes sense through the lens of the cultural way we use the term salty. Like it cuts a little. This is just a little, little bitter. There's a, there's a lot of grace and just a, a little cutting salt, but that's not what this means at all. Just not. Salty speech was a really common metaphor in the ancient Near Eastern world. We see it in Greek and Roman and Jewish writings all over the place. And basically, salty speech meant interesting. I was like, don't be boring. Put a little seasoning on it so you're worth listening to. For instance, I got two pictures of chicken up here on the screen. As you look at these pictures, if you had to eat one for lunch... Which one looks more interesting to you? As I say that, I'm realizing I'm talking to a room full of a lot of white people with Scandinavian backgrounds. So we're not going to bat 100 on the correct answer to this question. Because some of you are literally out there right now going, oh, that looks so spicy. Is that cilantro? You're trying to burn off my throat? Oh, it's just, I can't even. But anyways... Paul's like, put a little seasoning on it to make it interesting. And the crazy thing is what he's saying is that grace is that seasoning. That grace is the thing, like the thing 
that makes what we have to say about Jesus interesting, fascinating, and captivating. Because nobody has ever heard anything like the grace of Jesus from anybody other than Jesus. Like grace is salt in this metaphor. Full of grace, seasoned with salt is the same thing. And Paul is saying, look, people are out there in a world that tells them, hey, this is truth. Check all the boxes. Never fail or else you're out. And Christianity is like, oh, no, you're going to fail. <laughs> you're kind of hopeless. You can't check enough boxes to make your way to God. But you don't have to. He made his way to you. He did everything that needs to be done, so just let him save you. Just accept the beauty of his forgiveness and his reconciliation and his love. Like, that is the stuff that absolutely changes the game. That's the good news of the gospel. Grace at the beginning, grace at the end, all grace in the middle. And grace is necessary. It's inescapably essential for every human who's ever taken a breath on this planet because our sin cuts us off from Jesus, but Jesus made his way back to us. And when we tell people that in a world that constantly beats them over the head with the idea that they must perform, even though deep down in their souls they know they can never perform good enough, it makes the truth tasty. It makes it palatable. It opens their ears to listen. Grace makes truth tasty. That's what grace does. Grace makes truth tasty. But I think too often these days, in the middle of a society where Christians seem to be losing influence, like politically and culturally, where we seem to be watching our social capital shrink, we tend to offer up the plain chicken of angry, bitter, power-hungry, pointed truth. And it aims people in the wrong direction. We speak truth without the salt. And when we do that, I think the shared message of our, just our common, shattered, universal desperation for Jesus gets lost in the angry words of our conversations, our sermons, our social media posts, and a whole lot more. I know it feels impossible in the middle of an increasingly hostile culture to speak the truth with grace, but that's how Jesus did it. He spoke 100% truth with 100% grace 100% of the time. And I get it that we're not Jesus. We're going to get it wrong a little bit more than he did, but that's also how so many people, ordinary people, who made an extraordinary difference for Jesus have lived for thousands of years. People like G.K. Chesterton. You guys have heard me quote him before. He was this brilliant writer and thinker and intellectual. His stuff helped convert C.S. Lewis to Christianity. He influenced world leaders, Christian and non-Christian, Churchill, Gandhi, and a whole lot more. Just a genius, but he was also a jolly idiot of a human being. Chesterton would frequently be going around London and forget where he was going and get lost. Then he'd visit the nearest telegram station, send a message to his wife that said, am at fill in the blank, where ought I to be? And then he would just sit on a bench until someone found his wife and she sent a telegram back and told him where to go. He'd show up to debate some of the leading atheists of his day, like H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw. And in the middle of the debates, he'd be pulling like, 
crumpled random scraps of paper out of his pocket. When they insulted him, he was known to just cackle at their insults and be like, ah, that's true, that's true, that's true. Just this in- happy, jolly guy. And then in the middle of that, he would completely dismantle everything that they had just said. In the words of one atheist intellectual he debated in London and then eventually converted to Christianity, he would undercut every philosophy I held dear, but in the most beautiful way. Chesterton was just this incredibly joyful, big personality, but he was a gracious guy. And no matter how heated the debate got, no matter how much he disagreed with the person on the other end, after every single debate, Chesterton would take his opponent out to a pub, buy him a few rounds, hang out and become friends. Just the kind of guy he was. He was captivating, not because of his intellect, but because of his grace. There have been plenty of brilliant Christians over the centuries. There are plenty of brilliant Christians in the world today, but very few, very few have led as many atheists to Jesus Christ as G.K. Chesterton. And he did it because he spoke with salty grace. He was uncompromising in his defense of what he believed. He was possibly the foremost defender of orthodox truth in the entire 20th century. But he defended it in such a gracious way that people couldn't help but listen to what he had to say. And countless individuals met Jesus because of him. And we can do that exact same thing. We can speak the truth with grace in a way that's salty and captivating. And so my challenge, like Paul's challenge to all of us today, is to go speak and interact and crash into the people you're going to crash into this week with this salty, captivating grace. Because I think if we do that, as we do that, as we step into the lives and the purpose and the mission Jesus has for us, he will work through us in all of our painful ordinary to do the extraordinary work of helping people crash into Jesus, know his love, and follow him fully. Because that's what we're here for. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the way that grace completely changes the game for us, that we don't have to earn our way to you because you made your way to us. Lord, let us be a people of grace who proclaim that grace in a way that's salty and captivating because it's the message unlike any other message anybody's got to offer in this world. And we know there are hundreds of thousands of people in our city who are desperately yearning to breathe the oxygen of your love and our call as your church is to go bring it to them. And so I pray for the courage and the conviction to go do that today. Lord, would you make us a people of salty grace. And would you work through us to change the world one hard-fought inch and one life at a time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.